grace and peace, y'all don't know right. Come on now. Let's try that again. Grace and peace, y'all doing all right? Yes. All right, that's better. Let me um, just begin by saying happy Mother's Day to all the moms with us today, um, especially my beautiful wife, Shadia, and um, my mom, of course, she's going to be listening to the podcast, I know. Uh, so, hey, mama. <laughs> if she was here, she'd be like, my boy can preach a little bit. But um, happy Mother's Day. Um, I am Jonah. Um, I lead uh, Reform University Fellowship on the campus of uh, Winston-Salem State University. Uh, I just had to throw that out there. Uh, it has a nice little ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, next fall, next fall for me of next year, 2020, um, for me, it's special. It actually will be 20 years for me um, since my first original ordination in the Assemblies of God, um, actually 20 years ago. That's a long time. But in that 20 years, I've, I've had the privilege of, of doing tons of preaching and teaching um, from lots of books from the Bible, um, from a myriad of different topics. Um, but one book has always managed to be difficult for me to wrestle with. And that's the book of Jonah. So tonight, know that this is a first for me. Let's pray. Father, I um, am incredibly grateful and humbled by your word for us tonight. It is... um, It's revealed in me so many of the inadequacies of my own self-righteousness and exposed my pride in ways that um, I had refused to even be honest with myself about. And as my Jewish brothers declare that I am Jonah on Yom Kippur, um, for me is more than just a declaration of my namesake, but for me is a much greater reflection that reveals that I too am rebellious and disobedient and in desperate need of the salvation that only you can give me. And I pray God that my brothers and sisters here with me tonight would see much of what you've taught me in this text that they would be strengthened and encouraged, but also convicted and repentant. Now, Father, would you use me to preach your word with boldness and clarity to make much of your son, Jesus, and to proclaim the riches of your glory. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I, um, I love stories. Uh, my passion for preaching I'm sure has some roots in this love for great stories. On a really basic level, uh, preaching is the retelling of stories of God's work in the lives of his people, um, the hope that comes to us in Jesus, and an ending narrative of how, despite the turmoil of life, that there is fulfillment 
of an eternal life in paradise. This leaves me with this love of being immersed in a great story. I, I, I don't like stories, though, that are fake, though, at least not that I see them. I'm generally not into mystical worlds or fantasy, but I like stories where I get to see myself in the characters. I love stories that let me see myself in the characters' thoughts and actions, and I can really place myself in their shoes. I'm a huge fan of Apple, and if you completely idolize them the way that I do, and notice the deep need for repentance there, uh, you know that Apple regularly hosts these huge events, and generally these events are used to introduce the latest version of an iPhone or updates to a Mac. But the last Apple event was about one thing, as it was about stories. So they highlighted the stories that you can read across your Apple devices from leading newspapers and magazines, most of which were highlighted by remarkable imagery. Most of the event, though, focused on the stories of the world's most recognizable storytellers. So Tim Cook brought to the stage Steven Spielberg, Ron Howard, Viola Davis, the Aquaman, Jason Momoa, and even Oprah. And as I watched, I was struck by Apple's ability to capitalize on our culture's fascination with stories. I grew up in the church, though, and I've honestly always loved the church's commitment to being the place for compelling stories. When I was a boy, we'd go on Friday nights to what we call testimony service, and we'd hear people telling the stories of how God had healed them miraculously, or how they had been delivered from addictions, or even how in terrible states of lostness, God calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light, finding true faith in him, each person telling their story of the grace and mercy of God in their lives. I heard a story recently, though, from a friend of mine that I found incredible. I've adapted it a bit, but um, let me just tell you a story. Uh, two friends, one summer night, are hanging out in downtown Winston in Bailey Park, uh, the weather is great, but it's pretty late. The only people in the park are these two friends. And occasionally there's a car that whizzes by, but these two friends, they're laughing, having a great time. But suddenly there's a hooded man who comes from almost out of nowhere. He begins to brutally attack one of those friends. And despite the screams for help, no one can hear. And you finally muster the courage to, to jump on the guy and you manage to pull the hood from his head and now knowing that you can clearly see who he is, he decides to run away. Finally, the case against him comes to trial and you give testimony to what you had witnessed in this brutal attack of your friend who can no longer speak or had even been left paralyzed. And the judge hears the defense 
in that regard as well. He dismisses court randomly, but he calls you the witness and this brutal attacker into his chambers. He thanks you for telling your story, for what you had witnessed. And then he looks at this attacker and he says, it's pretty clear that it's been established that you committed the crime, but let me ask you, are you sorry for what you've done? And this guy, he says, yes, and the judge says, great. So now you're free to go, but, but not only that, he reaches into his pocket and hands you a few bucks, and he says, now nah, you go with him, and you guys have a couple drinks on me. I'm sure most of you are a lot like me in hearing a story like that and say, that's ridiculous. What kind of judge would, would do something that absurd? I mean, the judge knows that this dude is guilty and he's just going to let him go because he said he's sorry. Uh, what kind of judge would do that? You know that there is a judge who has done exactly that. He is not only the judge, though. In fact, he himself is justice. The judge that all judges have to answer to. He is spirit and infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, Holiness, justice, goodness, and truth is how our confession describes this judge. This judge who is the creator of all things. Yet this doesn't quite feel like justice though, does it? And if you're questioning this justice, that's great because then you understand exactly what Jonah was feeling when he decides to run away. Jonah, a man who knew God, had been used by God to speak truth to his people, yet he heard God speak once again, and rather than voice this truth to the people who needed to hear it, he rather decides to, to turn and run. This is why, as my brother John preached last week, why Jonah is a dangerous reflection of ourselves. Jonah, he's, he's probably a great guy and all, but this justice doesn't quite feel like justice. Jonah is a book whose author is anonymous. Um, it is named for its main character primarily. Uh, it was probably written about 760 B.C. Uh, Jonah is probably the one who is telling the story after having returned back to Israel from Nineveh. And we learn that Jonah is actually introduced to us before the book of Jonah in 2 Kings as the prophet during the reign of uh, Jeroboam II. 
Uh, it's interesting, though, that Jonah would be a prophet during this guy's reign because uh, Jeroboam is described in Second Kings as someone who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet he was used by God to bring expansion to Israel to the size it was during the days of David and Solomon. And Jonah prophesied that this would happen. Uh, I hope this, though, is encouraging for us. I, I found it incredibly encouraging because it's an example of how even with evil, wicked men leading, God can still bring about growth and fruitfulness. This is important because this means that Jonah knows God's compassion and his desire to bring hope and restoration to his people. Yet Jonah is a primary example of nationalism and bigotry and ethnocentrism. I'd like to say, though, that none of what we see in Jonah's life is true for me or for any of you, but that wouldn't be quite right, though, would it? The confession of Jan Kampor that we are Jonah is true, right? But as John preached last week, I, I, I began to, to think about this text. And I began to see not only are we so much like Jonah, but we're also much like the people of Nineveh. So not only are we the ones who are foolish enough to think we can run from God, but we're also the ones who deserve the destructive wrath of God. If I can, though, let me address the reality that for some, this story of Jonah is a bit far-fetched all by itself. As a church, we, we value those who have some questions about what we believe, and if you're doubtful about Jonah's story, uh, I know that I got you. Uh, let me tell you, though, why I believe Jonah's story to be true, and I promise it's not some deep theological, uh, churchy craziness either. Uh, let me say, I believe Jonah's story to be true because, well, Jesus believed Jonah's story to be true. Jesus uses this story of Jonah, a recalcitrant, sinful man, to point us to himself. In Matthew 12, Jesus uses Jonah to teach us about his own death and resurrection. And if we look at the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus, we can see um, some similarities that only show us just how much we need Jesus. So you can see things like how the sea and the cross uh, are used both as imagery for both uh, a despair and separation from God. Uh, Jonah is in a fish three days and Jesus is in a tomb for three days, although uh, Jonah, we're going to see, only feels like he's going to die. Uh, but Jonah, after three days, is vomited back on dry land because this fish, even the fish is sick of him, and Jesus rises from the grave after three days as the greatest miracle in the history of humanity. Jonah and Jesus were both called of God to also go to another place. For Jonah, he was called to the city 
And Jesus was called from the glories of heaven to the humility of being born in a manger. Jonah preaches this message reluctantly to people who are overwhelmingly receptive. And Jesus boldly proclaims the coming kingdom and he is slaughtered and sacrificed as the very Lamb of God. So we know now of Jonah's attempt to, to run from God and he finds himself in the middle of the storm. They throw him into the sea and we arrive at tonight's passage. Jonah 1.17 says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. J.D. Greer, a pastor in Durham, says that this fish is a submarine-like prop used to transport the AWOL prophet farther than he could have imagined. Even in the utter depths of the sea, God is still there pursuing him, preparing him, and sending him. For Jonah to survive being swallowed by a fish alone would be an incredible miracle. But church, let me remind you that it's not outside of the possibility and providential sovereignty of God. A.W. Pink said that this sovereignty of God is simply just God being God. Jonah being swallowed by a fish is a remarkable example of God's sovereignty above all creation and that he will accomplish his purposes despite our own foolishness. So we see God commanding the sea, telling the tide to stand real high and the waves to crash and the lightning to flash and the winds to blow. And he prepares a fish to save Jonah from himself. Chapter 2, verse 1 reads that Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard me, my voice. Uh, can I just say um, something? If I'm in the middle of drowning, there is one way that I'm sure is the absolutely last way I'd ever want to be saved. And this is it. This is a literary expression by Jonah saying, Lord, I thought I was dead and you saved me. Lord, have mercy. Notice that in verses 3 through 9, Jonah is worshiping God, having a testimony service all by himself, like the mothers in the church growing up. Look at what he says. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters close in over to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped, were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord 
and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And like in those churches as a little boy, I'm sure he probably went to uh, his seat saying, let the church say amen. When I was teaching, I also coached some basketball. And sometimes during the course of the game, it was necessary for me as the head coach to call a timeout. Timeouts are an important part of the game because as the coach, you have to use them to put your team in the best position to win. Uh, Y'all don't see this yet. It's coming. Sometimes as a coach, it's not necessary to stop all the action of the game in front of you. But you just need to call a player to the bench because there is something in him you need to work out so he can get back in the game and help bring you to victory. This isn't just a sports metaphor, though, because God himself is the greatest head coach ever. In the game of bringing his people out of Egypt, I called a, God called a timeout in the wilderness that lasted for 40 years, a journey that should have only taken weeks. God called a timeout to prepare his people for victory. This fish experience for Jonah is God calling a timeout to position him to win. See, we like Jonah and the people of Nineveh need to be saved from God's righteous judgment, his righteous wrath against us because of our sin. Like the fish that swallowed Jonah, saving him from drowning, Jesus is the gracious good news that saves us from drowning in the sea of God's wrath. Jesus comes and offers himself to be thrown into the sea of the wrath for us. Not selfishly in rebellion like Jonah did, rather that he would die than see the people turn to God because at the root of it, that's why Jonah didn't really want to go, right? In Jonah 4, Jonah tells God, he says, this is exactly why I did not want to come here, because I knew you would save them. But Jesus, Jesus comes into the sea and sinks in it, bearing the weight of our sin so that we can be washed on the shores of eternal paradise. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology describes salvation as the saving of man from the power and effects of sin. Salvation is this biblical idea that perpetually is displayed. 
We see it in Israel's exile in Isaiah, the deliverance from evil adversaries in the Psalms, the oppression from the Philistines and Judges. Know, though, that it is the very root of the Old Testament narrative is this theme that the Lord is my salvation. In Calvin's Institutes, he addresses salvation. He calls it our business with God. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, connects in two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. In book two, in which he deals with the Redeemer, he goes on to expound on this idea, saying, for unless we realize our own helpless misery, we shall never know how much we need the remedy for which Christ brings, nor come to him with fervent love we owe him. To know the true flavor of Christ, we must each of us carefully examine ourselves and each must know himself condemned until he is vindicated by Christ. No one is exempt. The prophet includes all. If Christ had not brought help, the whole human race would perish. <coughs> Titus 2.11 tells us that it is by grace of God that salvation comes to all people. That in Judges 3, salvation is shared. In Hebrews 5, that salvation is eternal. In Luke 19, it is ascribed to Christ alone. Salvation in the scriptures is generally used in practical circumstances to teach this spiritually deep things like how Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19 prays for deliverance from an imminent attack of the Assyrians or in Psalms 54 how David prays to be saved from the hand of Saul. In Romans 8 and 30, the Apostle Paul begins to shape the framework of what we in the reform camp have come to know as the Ordo Salutis. It's a word that simply means the order of salvation by outlining God's redemptive work as God predestines, meaning that he is choosing some for salvation in eternity past, that he calls regenerating the elect by his spirit. He justifies imputing upon the regenerate person the righteousness of Christ Jesus that he glorifies, granting that those who are justified are to be raised and resurrected upon his return. Salvation comes to us through this act of God's grace alone. God's grace is unmerited favor for us. So salvation by grace alone means that you receive the exact opposite of what it is that you deserve. Salvation by grace alone means that while you deserve his wrath, he has in his mercy chosen rather to give you his son as a substitute. Salvation by grace alone means that like Jonah, we experience a jab to the face because that's not exactly what we believe grace or salvation to be. Jonah, like us, believes in fairness, right? It's why we have a problem with the judge from the story I talked about. So if someone does something wrong, they deserve the consequences of their actions. 
but then don't you deserve the consequences of your wrong? Or maybe uh, the only real sinner here tonight is, is me, and I'm just grateful I'm not in the grave that I deserve. And maybe I'm the only one who knows what it is to experience the mercy of God sending fish to save me from drowning over and over and over. Especially knowing that death is exactly what I deserve. I'm so grateful that God's not fair to me. Rather than being fair to me, God has chosen not to compromise his righteous demands. Instead, he insists that those demands be met, that the penalty be paid, but he gives himself. It is like that judge who takes money from his own pocket to pay your debt. He gives us Jesus that on the cross is our propitiation for all he has chosen to reconcile to himself. He is salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation leads us to bear good fruit, to live our lives purposely, as image bearers of Christ Jesus, that the world may know him. In Romans 10, 8 through verse 10, the Apostle Paul writes, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with your heart one believes and is justified, and with your mouth one confesses and is saved. The most amazing part of this scripture for me is the promise he calls us to hold on to. He says, if you believe in Jesus in this way, you will be saved. This is crazy, though, because this guy who is writing this is the same guy who stood by gloating when the deacon Stephen was was being killed. The same guy that led raids on the homes of Christians, dragging them into the streets for persecution. But he's also the same guy who has experienced mercy in his own life. And desires that we would know the truth of being freed from the guilt and condemnation of sin. But that we have been given the riches of his glory. And it's free to all who call him Lord and Savior. Last night as I was listening to my brother Howard Brown preaching. uh, He was talking about new members in the church at Christ Central in Charlotte, and I thought about something. As members of Salem Prayers, we've all at some point had to affirm two questions. The first, uh, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope 
save in his sovereign mercy? And the second one, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? You could summarize both of these questions by one. Uh, do you believe that salvation belongs to the Lord? Jonah's story is, is not about a fish. That fish is only mentioned four times in the entire book. Jonah's story is not about Nineveh. In fact, uh, Nineveh is only mentioned nine times in the entire book. The story of Jonah is not even about Jonah, who's mentioned 18 times in the entire book. But the book of Jonah is about God. The God that wants us not to drown in the sea of wrath, but to find rest in the sea of his grace, sending us as he has Jonah as heralds of good news, proclaiming to others what we have come to know, that salvation is of the Lord. My prayer as we leave this place is that we would, would hear from Jonah's story the message of a God who has always been at work to bring about the redemption of his people. A redemption at work that is fulfilled in the person and work of his son Jesus. Jonah has been a hard message for me because it forces me to look at myself in the mirror and deal with the reality of my sin. I didn't grow up reformed, so it was something I had to learn. And one of the early reform influences I had was this guy named R.C. Sproul. And I didn't know much of him, I just heard a podcast. And he said something one day that absolutely changed my life. He said this, he says, if you don't know that God would be perfectly justified in sending you to hell, then you have not truly dealt with your sin. I purposely hadn't mentioned verse 10 until now because I want you to see something with me. In Jonah 2.10 it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. I talked about how the fish was sick of Jonah. So to, to vomit something out is your body rejecting something. And I'm sure you, like me, have things in your life, like I do, that need to be rejected out. Secondly, though, it says that Jonah is vomited out on dry land. And as we get to see in chapter 3, we see that the dry land that Jonah ends up on is exactly the place where he began. Why? Because we have a God of second chances. So chapter 3 begins just as it does in chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, in Jesus, God is giving us a second chance. That despite our past, we have been given incredible hope because salvation, salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Y'all be blessed.